I'm Krista Tippett. Today, discovering where we live, reimagining environmentalism. My guests are linking everyday life and ecology in new ways from southern Wisconsin to the South Bronx. Calvin DeWitt is transforming a rural wetland and bringing environmental science to evangelical Christianity. And from one of the poorest and most toxic neighborhoods in the U.S., Majora Carter is changing the face of the environmental movement. You do have to make it relevant. Like, it's not this pie-in-the-sky thing. It's, it's, you know, believe me, I think that the rainforest in Brazil should be protected. But it's too far, you know, from the general daily lives of, of so many people, especially poor people living in, in their communities, whether they're living in the Rust Belt, uh, whether they're living in the South Bronx. You know, it's like you've got to meet people where they are. This is Speaking of Faith. Stay with us. I'm Krista Tippett. This hour, we revisit my conversation with two people who haven't waited for climate change to transform their immediate world. One is unraveling ties between ecology and injustice in the South Bronx. The other is a scientist and evangelical Christian in south-central Wisconsin. Theirs are not trendy or elite forms of environmentally conscious consumption— their ways of living that nurture our societal framework and its relation to daily life in the natural world. From American Public Media, this is Speaking of Faith, Public Radio's conversation about religion, meaning, ethics, and ideas. Today, discovering where we live, reimagining environmentalism. My guests reveal far-flung places on the spectrum of ecology and both forge a new kind of link between community and cause. Later, we'll hear from Majora Carter, an artist by training, an urban strategist by passion, from one of the poorest and most environmentally ravaged neighborhoods in the U.S. She is changing the face of the environmental movement. There still is this disconnect, you know, between you know, what's considered like official environmentalism or what I call official environmentalism, what they think is called that, and, um, you know, what actually happens to real live people, you know, on the ground that can't afford a Prius. First, I'll speak with Calvin DeWitt. He's a biologist and zoologist and professor of environmental studies at the University of Wisconsin at Madison. He's also been creating and living in a sustainable community in the rural wetlands of Dunn, Wisconsin, just south of Madison, for three decades. And Cal DeWitt is a lifelong evangelical Christian. The environmental magazine Grist once wrote that he's been one of the prime movers behind almost every significant collaboration between evangelicals, scientists, and politicians calling for concerted action to battle global warming. In the mid-1960s, Cal DeWitt was galvanized by an essay which is still one of the most widely reprinted articles in Science Magazine's history. In it, historian Lynn White Jr. put modern ecological crisis squarely at the feet of Christian cultures and colonizers who'd recklessly applied God's commandment in Genesis that human beings should subdue the earth and have dominion over its creatures. But as Cal DeWitt understands it, the root of the word translated as dominion means stewardship or service, a root also of conservation. And he calls the Bible an ecological handbook. Cal DeWitt has put it into practice in this way, beginning with the marsh beneath his feet. I live on Wabisa wetlands, which is a very large marsh. And uh, my lawn has 70 different species of plants. It's a rich uh, and abundant uh, place for animal life. It looks just like anyone else's lawn from a distance. But when you come up close, you'll find it's uh, multi-textured and uh, it's got just a vibrant life. I recall one year during migration, for example, that 3,000 robins descended on my lawn to eat earthworms because <laughs> I uh, am producing so many, not by trying, but because <laughs> that's what happens. <laughs> how, how does it come to be so textured and various? 
I do what I call ecological lawn mowing. When one species really gets the upper hand, I'll just mow it closer to the ground, or I might let it go up four or five inches and then cut it. When my lawn needs seeding, I let the grass grow to full height, let's say on a small patch, 10 by 10 feet, wait until it seeds and cut it. Mm -hmm. And that means for much of the summer then, it looks like you forgot to shave on one part of your (laughs) face, (laughs) but it's ecological lawn mowing. And one of the things to start this off uh, is you can look up the meaning of weed in a dictionary and you discover that... uh, it's defined as a plant growing where you don't want it to grow. So I got rid of all my weeds just by looking out of them all and saying, welcome. <laughs> uh, so no pesticides or besides are necessary. But wait, tell me what that means. Do they, are they, they're still there, right? Oh, yes. Yeah, they, you, you they welcome are. them and, oh, so they're not weeds. You don't define them they're as weeds They're not weeds, weeds by, okay. <laughs> the, right. they are not weeds I because see. a weed is, something, weed is you something you don't want. Mm-hmm. And if you want them, they're mm-hmm. automatically gone. Mm-hmm. Then, of course, I've, I've been chairman of my own town, the town of Dunn, and uh, led it through a stewardship effort so that my whole community could join in this great privilege of taking care of the land. And we have 34 and a half square miles of land pretty well secured for agriculture, for human dwellings, for wetland preservation, and then also for prairie restoration. Every two years, we have a biennial parade of prairies in our town, which is our counter to... uh, annual parades of homes held in other communities. (laughs) Uh, So we're trying to live wholesomely. We're listed on uh, websites as an example of a sustainable community. A sustainable community, and does that necessarily mean... I don't know, less profitable, less... Does it... What what do you sacrifice for? (laughs) I mean... (laughs) We sacrifice congestion, uh, busyness frantic behavior, frequent trips to the mall. Uh, That's what we sacrifice. What we gain is peace, wholesomeness, less TV watching, more hikes, more enjoyment uh, when the cranes return to the marsh in the spring, and less expenditure on recreation because the recreation is all about us. Jesus' teaching on behold the lilies of the field, behold the birds of the air is really well taken here. And uh, beholding is so much different than just checking off species on a, on a life list. Hmm. And as you well know, in our time, people are waking up to the environment largely because of what seems like an impending crisis. Yes. And when you started doing this, you and your community, your town in Wisconsin, 30 years ago, it sounds like, more than 30 years ago, you must have been seen as kind of radical or, um, I don't know, how was it received then? Very definitely. We were really looked at as being really odd Uh um, because there wasn't really any crisis, although I think you could discover it if you worked to find it, but... What we did is uh, we studied our town. We did an inventory of all of the things that were present there, farms and marshes and springs and historic sites, Indian trails, buildings, our tobacco farms included. And what happened after we did this very careful and very extensive inventory is we fell in love with the place. Uh, <laughs> we Most of us didn't know where we lived. Uh, we just moved in and out, uh, rather oblivious to the beauty of things. How, how many and people once, are we talking about here, I mean, then and now? Then, uh, 4,200. Now it's 5,300. Is there a downtown? No, there's no downtown. Our downtown is the town hall, built in 1932 by a Norwegian shipbuilder, and it's surrounded by a, a intensive rotational grazing farm. And uh, it's a place where there are Holstein cows and... Uh, pasture lands and uh, a white town hall that looks uh, like a little church standing out uh, by itself in the country. We have about 12 uh, uh, communities uh, scattered across the face of the town, each one with their own little park. And uh, we do have town meetings where everyone can speak their peace at our meetings. Hmm. 
And do you have stores? Where do people go grocery shopping? No, or? we don't have any stores. We have a few. Uh, it's mainly rural, and they'll go grocery shopping in the wider region. But a lot of us grow our own food in our own gardens. We do have a farmer's market at the town hall. Yeah. And increasingly, we're trying to establish community-supported agriculture farms. We have Hmong farmers and uh, those who farm for flowers, flower production, and mm. prairie plant production as well. Environmental scientist and evangelical conservationist Cal DeWitt I'm Krista Tippett, and this is Speaking of Faith from American Public Media. Today, discovering where we live, reimagining environmentalism. Kelderwood has never had difficulty reconciling faith with science and his commitment, as he describes it, to the biosphere. He helped found the International Evangelical Environmental Network and helped galvanize evangelical support for the Endangered Species Act of 1996. The Osabel Institute for Environmental Studies, which Cal DeWitt ran for 25 years, creates academic curricula for over 50 Christian colleges and universities. And in 2002, together with a British physicist, Sir John Houghton, Cal DeWitt organized a watershed forum to expose conservative evangelical leaders to the hard science of climate change. The chief representative in Washington, D.C. of the National Association of Evangelicals, Richard Sizek, has said that he was converted to the science of climate change at that meeting. And Sizek and others have gone on to raise awareness of such issues in churches across the country. I think until quite recently, the environmental movement as such, and this is probably just as much a stereotype <laughs> as, <laughs> as the idea that all evangelicals are anti-science, um, it was considered to be something somewhat left-wing, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. I think secular. I think that was an association. Mm -hmm. And do you, has, it, has it seemed to you, and are, are you engaged in, that it was important to also find a new vocabulary to bring this movement, to make it accessible and to allow it to speak to more people out there in our culture? Yes, I think there is need for new vocabulary. There also is another irony here, and that is that many Christian people, including evangelicals, have been part and parcel of many of these organizations that we think of as being secular, like the Sierra Club, uh, the Nature Conservancy, and uh, all these other environmental groups. You've so, also pointed out, I think, that the president of the World Wildlife Federation is an evangelical Christian. Yes, he is. That's Larry mm -hmm. Schweiger, and uh, he's a very committed evangelical. What has really taken hold within the evangelical world and beyond is the concept of creation care mm -hmm. or caring for creation. That has diffused a lot of people's nervousness about using the word the environment. I have no problem using the word environment. The coining of this word by Geoffrey Chaucer, when he used it first in the form environing, which became environment, hmm. what came about from that was the first time that we could actually separate ourselves from the other. Uh, before that, we had no ability to do that in Western culture because it was the creation, and we were part always of part of it. So this was the environment as something separate outside us human beings. Yes. Linguistically, we had created through Chaucer a way of separating ourselves. So what's important about the revitalization of the word the creation and creation care and caring for creation is that it brings these two together again. I think you make an interesting and important observation as an evangelical about how quickly evangelical Christianity can move when it has, a, you know, as we say, Richard Sizek, the vice president of governmental affairs of the National Association of Evangelicals, says he was converted to the science of climate change. 
Yeah, and, and he, he says, much as I was converted to Christ, <laughs> right. which is quite a statement, but you're quite right. And that conversion is an aspect of that faith. It's also very non-hierarchical compared to other traditions. And you say that that also allows evangelical Christianity to be responsive. It does. In the evangelical world, there's a fear of hierarchy. And... Um, most of these churches are only loosely organized. Some have denominations, but there's a great distrust in human authority. And the teaching is the Bible is our source of life, of work, and of practice. So if the reading of the scriptures shows that caring for creation is a vital part of the human task, and we have been neglecting that, then that calls for conversion. And evangelicals are very used to the idea of taking about faces, which is really what conversion is about. And uh, this, interestingly, I was able to observe in the early to mid-1970s on world hunger issues. Bread for the World was formed and all sorts of things like that. Hunger relief organizations were formed. It was remarkable. So yeah. what I'm thinking is going to happen here is much like it's happening at uh, Boise Vineyard right now, uh, the Vineyard Church in, uh, in Idaho. Well, tell that story. That's about this environmentalism on the ground. In, in yeah, it really it is on the ground. It would be a Pentecostal congregation, wouldn't it, a Vineyard Church? It is Pentecostal. Okay, so and, what's, uh, what are they doing? Boise Vineyard has uh, Pastor Tri Robinson, who has a daughter who had been taking environmental studies courses and uh, was on to her dad to say something about the environment. And uh, Tri Robinson is a conservative Republican rancher. (laughs) What he did, uh, thanks to his daughter, was to discover that uh, he should do something about that. And it took him about six months of Bible study to find out you know, how he would say this biblically. And then with uh, some fear and a lot of prayer, he gave a sermon on uh, caring for creation. And remarkably, for the first time ever, the congregation stood up and gave him a standing ovation. Hmm. Though he's not just preaching about it, is he? I mean, aren't they... Oh, they're organizing uh, they, locally. They have regular programs that bring people high in the mountains to restore trails, to eliminate... Uh, invasive species, to uh, recycle materials. They have a food pantry, for example, that not only is a food pantry, but it serves 23 other food pantries. The place is just absolutely vibrant and alive. And, uh, of course, their membership is just growing tremendously Hmm. because there have been all sorts of disenfranchised environmental types kind of waiting for the church to do something, and here it is. (laughs) It's happening. Yeah. Uh, So watch out. You've worked all over the world, I know. I, I noticed that you'd worked in Cambodia in working with them on wetland stewardship, um, yeah. lower Mekong Delta, conservation leaders. I wonder, as you are out in the wider world, with the way you've uh, reconciled your Christian underpinnings with mm-hmm. with your observations as a scientist, do you also discover this happening in other traditions? Do you discover resources from other traditions working in the same way? Well, I'm I'm working mainly with Christians and with uh, Jewish people and largely working in the United States. And the reason is that in all these other countries I work, the U.S. is seen as the beacon, as the model, as the leader. Hmm. Yet we are not seen in the area of environment, at least in recent decades, as being the leader we once were. Religion basically is, as Wayne C. Booth at the University of Chicago says, religion is the passion to live rightly on earth and to spread right living. Hmm. And we really do know a lot 
about how to live rightly. With the natural world as well. With the natural world, Mm -hmm. yeah. We really do. And uh, in America, we have perhaps the richest treasure of this knowledge. And now to go out into all the world and preach the good news is really all of our business. One of the things I would do if I were in our Washington administration is I'd uh, summon a great deal of wise thinkers from the Netherlands to come over or we would visit them there and we would sit at their feet and learn, uh, learn to learn. That's a model for you, the Netherlands? Of- I think the Netherlands at this point is a model because we have an immense amount of knowledge in the United States. The Dutch have the will <laughs> to actually do something about it because that nation uh, stands to lose the entire country. Right. If it doesn't act. Well, that's mobilizing, uh, all, too. All we're going to do is new, lose New York and South Florida and uh, Louisiana. <laughs> uh, that's all we lose. But they'll lose the whole country. <laughs> so That should be frightening enough, losing I those three so. places. I think so. And, of course, many of our cities are taking the lead on this. But we now have to take the lead nationally. You say that your students often ask you, why do you do this work with such joy? Although you are right in the middle of this knowledge, the front lines of knowledge about the ecological crisis, I worry mm-hmm. that, that the knowledge we're getting also can paralyze us. I don't, mm-hmm. I don't experience you to be paralyzed in any way. <laughs> I mean, is it, do you not no, talk true. about the fear or do you just, you know, how do, no. you, how do you end up having this approach, this sense, sensibility? Uh, the way I approach this is the way I've heard others do it, too. Uh, ours is to be faithful, not necessarily successful. But the thing that you do know is that if you're faithful in pursuing integrity of the earth, integrity of society, that it may become contagious. <laughs> and uh, I know that from my own town of Dunn, and I'm hoping now that we'll be doing that for the entire biosphere, for the whole creation. Cal DeWitt is a professor at the Nelson Institute for Environmental Studies of the University of Wisconsin at Madison. His books include Earthwise, a biblical response to environmental issues. This is Speaking of Faith. After a short break, reimagining environmentalism from another angle. Urban strategist Majora Carter on the ecological restoration of her beloved, beleaguered neighborhood, the South Bronx. You know, believe me, I think that the rainforest in Brazil should be protected, but it's too far, you know, from the general daily lives of, of so many people, especially poor people living in, in their communities, whether they're living in the Rust Belt, uh, whether they're living in the South Bronx. In many ways, our radio program is just the beginning. We're continuing to make my unedited conversations available as MP3s through our podcast and website. Here's your chance to hear what was cut from my interview with Cal DeWitt. You can also take a visual tour as Cal DeWitt walks us across his land in Dunn, Wisconsin. Discover more and share your reactions at speakingoffaith.org. I'm Krista Tippett. Stay with us. Speaking of Faith comes to you from American Public Media.
Speaking of Faith is supported by Penguin Books, announcing Krista Tippett's new book, Speaking of Faith, Why Religion Matters and How to Talk About It. Now in paperback with an index and reader's guide. In bookstores on January 29th. Sustainability coverage supported by Calvert, mutual funds, college savings, and retirement investments in companies committed to responsible environmental, social, and governance practices. Online at calvert.com. Welcome back to Speaking of Faith, public radio's conversation about religion, meaning, ethics, and ideas. I'm Krista Tippett. Today, Discovering Where We Live, Reimagining Environmentalism. My next guest, Majora Carter, is a new breed of environmentalist, homegrown, without formal expertise, yet crafting wildly successful concrete initiatives from the raw realities of urban life. In 2005, she was awarded a MacArthur Genius Grant. She's the founder and director of a vibrant organization that is setting benchmarks for the city of New York as a whole. It's called Sustainable South Bronx. Unlike Cal DeWitt, Carter is not a religious activist, but her work drives at the deep interaction between social ethics, economic injustice, and ecological hazard. She calls herself a social justice environmentalist. The South Bronx, where she grew up, is one of New York City's poorest neighborhoods and historically perhaps its most environmentally toxic. It has a higher concentration of industrial facilities than other sections of the city. Power plants, waste transfer stations, and high diesel truck traffic contribute to increased pollution and poor community health. An estimated 17% of Bronx school-aged children have asthma, three times the national average. Majora Carter left home to attend college at Wesleyan, and she never thought she would return. I mean, I grew up, you know, when the South Bronx in and of itself was burning. You know, this was a time of not just spiritual divestment, but actual financial you know, divestment. You know, so lots of landlords were torching their buildings in order to collect insurance money. And if you had, you know, any kind of, of intellectual acumen, then your job, you know, your duty to yourself was to leave an area like the South Bronx as soon as you could. When she went away, Majora Carter trained as an artist, not an environmentalist. But looking back now, she says that her study of art helped her come back to a ravaged, demoralized community with fresh eyes, insistent on beauty. I think originally I looked at the arts as a way to kind of insulate myself against, you know, the, the horrible things that I had to see you right. know, in my daily life when I was young. Kind of find beauty out there. Yes, uh-huh. exactly. So it was, a, it was a way to become somebody else or see things in a different way. But I do think that it really did help support you know, the work that I do right now because it helps me see things, again, in a way that I didn't before. So when I looked at our waterfront, you know, I didn't necessarily see only the industry that was there. I didn't only see, you know, some of the garbage that was floating in the river. I saw possibilities. Mm. I was like, this place could be transformed. And that is, I think, what inspires me. Because, no, I don't have the background. Sometimes it bothers me that I don't. But for the most part, it's just like most people are not going to go to school for environmental you know, studies or right. anything like that. But they do have a sensual understanding of what is true and what is beautiful and what is going to help make their lives whole. And and I mean, if you think about it, I mean, just when you said that, most people are not going to go study environmentalism. It occurs to me that one day, probably not too far in the future, it will seem ridiculous that we should ever have thought that this should be something that experts know about. I mean, because really we're talking about the stuff of our daily lives, aren't we? Absolutely. And that is something, you know, my parents were completely uneducated. I mean, I think if they went up to the sixth grade, it was a lot. You know, but they understood as you build your home, as you build your life around you, as you build, you know, look outside of your home, you're building a community. And it should be something, you know, that you want to see more of, right. something that you want to respect and love. And, um, you know, I do remember that very clearly, like my family being incredibly house proud. And, um, you know, I might not have appreciated their taste <laughs> in a lot of ways, <laughs> but, um, you know, everything was was very much about like how what you put out to the world. And I think for poor communities, you know, in particular, um, we're not expected to put anything out in the world that's beautiful for people to see, you know, and that 
has as much to do with the way I, I view my community and the work that I do as a part of it. Because all we're trying to do is help folks understand that regardless of how poor you are, you know, regardless of what color you are, you have an inherent beauty and that you should be able to look outside of yourself and see that too. Hmm. And that our, you know, administrations, our regulators, our you know, legislators really help to need to support that, especially when it's politically expedient to go the other way. So start telling me the story of how you became an environmentalist. You know, I moved back home because I had to. I was broke and <laughs> started grad school and um, only wanted to do arts-related community development. But got there and realized that those funny smells that I smelled in the neighborhood for a really long time were actually, you know, as it was all these industries that were there. And then we discovered that the city and the state were planning on building a waste facility on the waterfront that would have handled about 40% of the city's commercial waste, in addition to all that we already handled. And was this when they, they were redirecting the Fresh Kills landfill yes. was shut down? And that got lots of publicity as a great move. And then what you found out is that they were, that I mean, it still had to go somewhere, all that yes. waste. And it was going to the South Bronx. Exactly. And the move to, to close Fresh Kills was a good one. It never should have been opened in the first place. It right. was never handled the way it should have been. And that wasn't our problem. Our problem with it was you know, equitably distributing um, those kinds of uh, burdens, essentially, around right. the city. And poor communities of color were handling about 95% of another kind of waste stream, and this would have brought even more to us. Which is incredible. Yeah, exactly. And the fact that, you know, had we not found out about it completely by accident, we could have had that on our waterfront right to this day. You've said in other interviews that people were very demoralized and dejected and that you, you really had to work just to get them mobilized about this. And I mean, it seems to me in a way you had to make them hopeful, but before that you almost maybe had to make them angry. It's very true. I mean, to hear people say, of course, you know, if you tell them like this, this 5,200 ton per day waste facility is coming to the waterfront and to hear people say, well, of course it's going to come here. This is where all the kind of crap comes. Right. And what can you do against something like that, that machinery? You figure out where, where folks are. And, you know, we realize, okay, we've got one of the country's highest asthma rates here. Parents are taking their kids into the emergency rooms a couple times a week sometimes, you know, just to, like, open up their, their tubes. And it's just like, oh, my God. So we help people make the connection between their health and especially their children's health right. and all of the facilities that were already located in the community. And little by little, it grew, you know, into this groundswell of, um, of support for, like, this is our community. You know, we want better for ourselves. And little by little, that's what happened. And I remember one of the most amazing moments of my life, and literally I backed into the room so I didn't even know it was happening. Um, <laughs> we had our last public hearing that we could, have, we could have had, you know, to tell the state and the city that we could not tolerate this. And I backed into the room because I was talking to somebody, and I turned around, and it was my old junior high school auditorium with 700 seats, and they were all filled mm. with people from my neighborhood. <laughs> and I was like, and I just cried <laughs> like right there and and we kept the the administrative law judge there until 12 midnight and the only reason why they stopped was because the court reporter ran out of paper social justice environmentalist majora carter after that meeting the city of new york halted its new waste transfer plans but very quickly, it became important to Majora Carter not just to be vocal about what she was against. She convened community-wide visioning meetings. And in 2001, Carter founded a nonprofit, Sustainable South Bronx. Sustainable South Bronx currently has five major initiatives underway, many of them inspired by environmental models Majora Carter has studied from Chicago, Illinois to Bogota, Colombia. I asked her to talk a bit about a few of them, beginning with the Greenway Project, now a $30 million restoration of the Bronx River waterfront. You know, we built these street-end parks, like the one, the start of it was um, one that my dog helped me find, which was really amazing. Tell that story. A few years ago, like as we were battling this waste facility, I kept getting these uh, 
applications, you know, to apply for waterfront restoration funding, like seed grants. And I thought, oh, that's really, really sweet, but these folks don't understand that you can't get to the waterfront from our neighborhood. And around the same time, I got a little crazy dog who took me jogging one day. Then why couldn't you get to the waterfront? Because there was, oh, there was industry all over the waterfront, and you just, I mean, you could see it on a map that we were a peninsula, but there was no way you could get to the water. Okay. So she took me out one day and dragged me into what I thought was one of the many illegal dumps that we had in the neighborhood. But what happened at, you know, behind the piles of garbage and weeds and other disgusting things was the river. You know, the Bronx River was right there. That must have been an amazing moment, though, for you to have grown up there and suddenly discover that, that the river was there, that it was part of the landscape. Oh, you had to be there. I mean, at six o'clock in the morning, you know, and the, it was right after sunrise and, and the sun was glinting off the water. And, you know, and if you didn't look behind you, you didn't see the piles of garbage behind you. And all I saw was this amazing possibility. I was like, this is the beginning. This is it. And like, literally, I ran home and like, you know, wrote, rewrote, rewrote the proposal. And um, it, we were funded for that little seed grant. And we got ended up, it was only $10,000, but we ended up uh, leveraging that about 300 times over into a $3 million park, which was just completed, just in time for my wedding, actually. I got married there. congratulations. Yeah, Yeah, it was just so beautiful, I can't even tell you. So another thing you're working on are what are called green roofs. I'd never heard of this, Mm. or cool roof. (laughs) Green and cool roofs. Yeah, it's a really interesting thing. It's the stuff they've been doing in in Germany for years. And um, cool roofs are highly reflective surfaces that don't absorb uh, solar heat and pass it on to the environment. And green roofs materials are soil and living plants. They're both used instead of petroleum-based roofs. Roofing materials, which degrade under the sun, and you actually breathe that stuff in. And they retain stormwater, so they don't dump them into the sewage treatment system, which incidentally are often in communities like the South Bronx. And uh, the coolest thing about them is that they actually attract wildlife. And so when we first opened up ours, we were actually invaded by a little pack of butterflies the first day we put it up. It was very, very cute. And it sounds like also that you do think of um, cities, urban areas, as just Mm -hmm. just hot, hot, hot. And Mm -hmm. it sounds like these roofs also don't trap heat in the same way. Yeah, I mean, so exactly. that is a that would be in an urban area especially a real improvement in quality of living for lots yes, of people. Yes, that concept that you're talking about is called urban heat island and it literally simply means that cities, you know, because of all the blacktop and the asphalt, you know, they actually retain heat, mm-hmm. you know, and then give it off at, at night whereas surrounding countrysides have more um, vegetative surfaces and they don't. So they're they're naturally cooler. They cool down, so yeah. that yeah, so the process of actually looking at ways to vegetate more of a city surface is simply a way, you know, of using a natural resource as a way to to counteract that. So it makes a lot of sense, but you know, again, but again, it's it's so simple that it takes a while to get to get the message across. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Okay, so you also have the Bronx Environmental Stewardship Training Program. Yes, and we've been doing the program since two thousand and three, and we have. We have like about a 90% success rate with about 80% of those people actually moving directly into the field of ecological restoration. Yeah. So, and, you know, and these are folks that, you know, some of them have actually never had a job. You know, we've had the South Bronx has one of the highest unemployment rates. We've got a 25% unemployment rate. You know, so teaching people whether they're just general life skills, you know, job readiness, and then also giving them tools so they can actually participate in this green collar, you know, workforce development that's actually happening around the country. Yeah, and seeing people just grow in that capacity. It's like, you know, they really start to understand, you know, their relationship to their own environment. You know, as they walk out their door, they recognize that they're a part of it. And it's really, really very cool. Hmm. One thing that just strikes me dramatically about your story and what you're doing is in the larger culture, people are waking up to the environment and to ecology by way of what's being presented to us as an impending crisis. You know, Mm -hmm. people are saying climate change is terrifying. And so maybe I need to look at what I can do in my life or my community. Mm -hmm. It seems to me in your community... Um, people in that community lived with an ecological catastrophe for years. Yes. And, and had begun to experience that as normal. There, you and others around you are waking up to the environment by way of making it better. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's a wonderful contrast, actually. Yeah. 
and making it better, like for the here and now. Uh-huh. You know, I think that. But and another one of the projects we're working on right now, it's called a recycling industrial park, and um, all it is, it's a collection of businesses that process and use recycled materials. Okay, and we handle so much of the city's recyclable materials you know, within our community as as and it's in our neighborhood that it's not even funny. But it produces a lot of truck traffic. It's almost entirely truck-based. And so we're like, oh, wait a second. Why aren't we looking at recycled materials as raw material? You know, because you can. And there's lots of precedent out there to show that that's the case. Mm-hmm. And also, you can barge this stuff out, you know, by water and use rail access. So we found a site that would accommodate this. And it could produce between three to 500 jobs, you know, we're, we're hoping. And we're doing a feasibility study on it right now. Reduce the amount of truck traffic and also would allow for our greenway. You know, to be developed right. you know, through that area as well. And so we understand that if we're going to be a part you know, of the solution, we have to engage the problems. Like waste material isn't going away. Why aren't we using it and turning it to something but else? It's the problems that are right in front of you. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. I mean, you are you are all contributing to whatever all of us have to do to um, minimize the effects of climate change, if that's what we're, what we're up against. But, Absolutely. but but what you're doing it by working on, as you say, the here and now. I mean, very mm-hmm. practical parts of life. It's practical, but it, and it you know it also serves a regional purpose. Yes. You know, it's like yes, we're working on this because you know what, as a sixty thousand diesel truck trips that come through our neighborhood, yeah, it has a direct impact on our health. But we understand the impact that that also has on climate change because we recognize that you've got to, like, reduce these greenhouse gases, but guess what? We've got them right now. Right. So for, it is about, you know, helping ourselves and helping others at the same time. Social justice environmentalist Majora Carter. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is Speaking of Faith from American Public Media. Today, discovering where we live reimagining environmentalism. Majora Carter caught the attention of influential environmental circles when she challenged Al Gore at the 2006 TED conference, Technology, Education, Design. Gore hadn't yet won his Nobel Peace Prize then or when I spoke with Majora Carter last year, but his documentary and book, An Inconvenient Truth, had solidified his role as an icon of American environmentalism. During her speech at that conference, Carter described approaching Gore in the hallway earlier that day to ask him how grassroots groups such as hers were part of his vision. He responded by directing her to a grant program. Carter said that Gore's assumption that she was approaching him for money felt dismissive. And this, she says, was also emblematic of a narrow view in the official environmental movement. Gore later apologized and invited Carter to join his efforts. She received applause when she told him and the assembled audience that she wasn't there to ask Gore for money. She was there to make him an offer of collaboration. What troubled me was that this top-down approach is still around. Now, don't get me wrong, we need money. (laughs) But grassroots groups are needed at the table during the decision-making process. Of the 90% of the energy that Mr. Gore reminded us that we waste every day, don't add wasting our energy, intelligence, and hard-earned experience to that count. I have come from so far to meet you like this. Please don't waste me. By working together, we can... Being born a poor black girl, you know, from the ghetto, I never forget who I am, ever. And so for me to get up on that stage, you know, and just be able to say, like, I was making you an offer Mm. was not so much for him, it was for me, because I knew that if I didn't get up there and say it, I knew that I would have been letting down a whole slew of people that probably were not going to have that chance to get up there and say something like that mm-hmm. on behalf of the work that we do. Are people in your neighborhood watching An Inconvenient Truth? 
now. They won't even show it in neighborhoods like ours. Mm. And I think that is part of the problem. It's a fantastic film, and I'm really glad it's getting the attention that it's getting. But, you know, again, there still is this disconnect, you know, between what's considered like official environmentalism or what yeah. I call official environmentalism, what they think is called that, and um, what actually happens to real live people, you know, on the ground that can't afford a Prius. <laughs> right. So, you know, I was talking to um, Cal DeWitt. Do you know him? He's an, he's an evangelical Christian. He's a scientist. He's been working on this for 40 years in rural, oh, yeah, rural yeah, yeah. Wisconsin. Yes, I have heard of you know, him. So he's mm-hmm. been on the ground in, an, in another way, in another place, you know, doing this mm-hmm. long before it was fashionable. Right. And what he's been doing the last years is building bridges between the science of the environment and climate change and mm-hmm. conservative evangelical religious people. And he talks about... Um, the you know the importance of a, of building new vocabularies that speak to different new people again outside right. this kind of official movement which hasn't reached everyone you know are there words that that we associate with environmentalism that don't work in your community and are there words or ideas or images that that are really powerful for you that you want to you know inject into the movement or into people's imagination about this yeah oh so many um but it, for us, it's more about concepts and what really resonates to people. Yeah. Like for, you know, again, if you're talking about a really poor community of color, you know, that has a 25% unemployment rate, you know, and kids are getting sick with asthma, that's what people are going to be concerned about. So we had to make sure that as we were building our projects, that we spoke to those needs and then would add um, environmentalism onto it. So you're you're talking about you're not talking about environmentalism. You're talking about asthma. You're talking about jobs. You're talking about yeah. obesity. When you talk about the Greenway Project, giving yep. kids places to run and play, exactly. and people places to walk. We're talking about crime reduction. You uh-huh. know, because the more people you know out on the street in a community doing positive things, like going for a run, means that the less negative things, you know, like robbing people, actually happens. Right. And we're changing our language to meet the needs of the people that are there because they are different. If like. Seventy-five percent of the people in your community don't even own a car. Why are we talking to them? You know about cafe standards. It's like they don't really care. Right, right. Um, so or buying a Prius. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, it's like give me a break. So this is taking me back to a place we started when you just talked about sustainability and how for you it's about seeing the whole. And I mean, this is giving detail and structure to what that whole mm-hmm. means for people in their right. in their everyday lives and their families. Right, right. And that's how you build an army, you know, of support. That's how you build people taking, you know, personal interest, you know, in this stuff because you do have to make it relevant. Like it's not this pie in the sky thing. It's it's, you know, believe me, I think that the rainforest in Brazil should be protected, but it's too far, you know, from the general daily lives of, of so many people, especially poor people living in, in their communities, whether they're living in the Rust Belt, you know, whether they're living in you know, New Orleans right now, uh, whether they're living in the South Bronx. You know, it's like you've got to meet people where they are. There are uh, West African traditions and uh, and religions that actually speak to, you know, your role, you know, as an active part of your environment. Like everything around you, whether it's, you know, the iron that you use to make a tool, you know, whether it's, you know, the tree that you carve a drum out of, you know, you are intimately, you know, associated with it. You know, it's a part of you as you help craft it, as you use it. And and so the building those connections and understanding that you ultimately have to nurture them, you know, as an active member, you know, of the environment is one of the most compelling things, you know, that I've learned. And uh, it's just something that I want to continue to build on in my life. Hmm. I, I still, you know, though, I also just think it's fascinating to think about you translating those ideas um, from a wild, lush, natural landscape, open landscape, a lot of it, <laughs> to, you know, to the South Bronx, to an American urban area that when you were growing up just a few decades ago was just in decay, and as yeah. you say, in flames. Yep, yep, in flames. Mm-hmm. Gosh, yeah, I just, I want to just, because the image just sort of popped up in my head when I was uh, 
my one of my earliest memories. I was about seven or eight. At the beginning of the summer, you know, I watched the two buildings at either end of my house burn down. And then at the end of the summer, my brother was killed, you know, as a result of a drug war. Mm. And uh, I just remember thinking, I got to get out of here. And now I'm back. (laughs) 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 Yeah. Majora Carter is founder and executive director of Sustainable South Bronx. Earlier in this hour, you heard scientist and evangelical conservationist Cal DeWitt. We'd love to hear your reactions to this program. Share your thoughts at speakingoffaith.org. Download MP3s of this program through our website, our podcast, and our weekly email newsletter. View images of the changes taking place in the South Bronx and take a visual tour as Cal DeWitt walks us across his land in Dunn, Wisconsin. You can also listen to my entire unedited conversations with Majora Carter and Cal DeWitt. Discover more at speakingoffaith.org. And Speaking of Faith has become a popular offering on iTunes U, an enriching resource for teachers and lifelong learners. This free collection is organized by subject and features additional tools for learning. Let us know if you use Speaking of Faith in your courses. Your input will help shape our offering. Learn more at speakingoffaith.org. Senior producer of Speaking of Faith is Mitch Hanley, with producers Colleen Sheck, Shiraz Janjua, and Rob McGinley Myers, with assistance from Anna Marsh. Our online editor is Trent Gillis. Kate Moose is the managing producer of Speaking of Faith. And I'm Krista Tippett. Speaking of Faith is supported by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. Pandemic flu is a real threat, but there are steps you can take to prepare. More information at takethelead.pandemicflu.gov. Additional support is provided by the Ford Foundation, a resource for innovative people and institutions worldwide, on the web at fordfound.org. The Luce Foundation's Henry R. Luce Initiative on Religion and International Affairs, and the George Family Foundation, funding innovative ideas in integrative medicine, education, and spirituality in everyday life. Sustainability coverage is supported in part by the Candida Sustainability Fund of the Tides Foundation, furthering values that contribute to a healthy planet. Next week, through Mitt Romney's presidential run, many have learned more about Mormonism, but indirectly, largely by way of accusations and defense. We'll delve into the basic beliefs and spirituality of the Latter-day Saints. Please join me for the next Speaking of Faith. American Public Media 